From the wettest summer since records began, we are sitting on the wiggly sofa at Blakemere. So we're going to talk a little bit about floods. <laughs> that sound is toast. And that sound is toast licking her nice, daddy. Nice. So where's toast? <laughs> Just been licking. <laughs> <laughs> and we're very glad to see Jam back because last weekend Jam had a little bit of a problem and was very proper poorly. So Jam is back with us on the Wiggly sofa and poorly no more. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers and I'm joined today by... Richard from Wiggly Wigglers. And Farmer Phil. OK, we're recording this on July the 26th, so the day after my birthday... Do, 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 do. How old are you this year? 43. Oh! And so it's just, it should be in the middle of harvest. Phil? Well, we have started, but we are currently, as many of our listeners will know, and by the time they listen to this, hopefully will be but a distant memory, enjoying the wettest July since records began, the wettest summer since anybody can ever remember. Half the country's been flooded out and the other half have been washed away. And we've got silage bales rolling around in crops of wheat and we've got silage bales duffing bridges out on the rivers and it's all sort of carnage all about. But of course it has quite serious implications that if this weather continues from this point for any significant time, the supplies of food are going to be affected. And we've already seen prices going up. We've seen thousands of acres literally under flood water and most, if not all, of those crops will be a total loss so that root crops and salad crops grown on the fertile floodplains near the rivers, they will be complete write-offs. Cereal crops, they've been battered by the storms, they've been flattened by the rain and wind is significant at this time of year. That's one thing that we've escaped so far but any significant wind now with these crops that are already beaten up they're going to be in problems. We've had hailstorms stripping oilseed rape from the crop, completely wipe out the crop, no crop at all. Yeah, but won't this mean that the prices will go up so you'll be uh, well away as a farmer because you've always gone on about how you want food prices to go up so that people value the food more? That's very true, and I am the first to say that I'm a big fan of market forces and prices going up. But if you fail to get your crop at all or your crop has been 100% written off by the river or a hailstorm, it doesn't matter what the price is, there's nothing there. Um, so that it's potentially quite serious. There are knock-on effects, so that if we fail to get some of our crops, we're going to be short of forage and litter for the cattle in the winter. And obviously then if we've got to buy it in, it's going to be very expensive. So then there's a decision, do we keep the cattle if we can't afford the litter or the forage to feed them? and all these sorts of decisions. The NFU have started a, a fodder exchange designed to try and help farmers yeah, um, idea, overcome this, to let people know where fodder is that people want to sell and where people want to buy it. I know we said this before, but to explain the word fodder. Fodder is... Fodder! Fodder uh, loosely <laughs> uh, describes pretty much any hay or straw type material that animals use. Mostly eat, but obviously for those of us who use it as bedding underneath them, that as well. From my point of view, I've got to say that luckily, so far, we are right at the beginning of harvest. We haven't escaped, and the grass seed crops particularly are looking a little the worse for wear. We've got some cereal crops that are a bit beaten up, but if the weather picks up from here on in, we will come off a lot better than some. And there are some 
really terrible disaster stories emerging, particularly from the river valleys, where people's whole livelihood for this year has gone. That, yeah. That's it, end of it. Mm. I'm sorry to be so dismal, but um, we've already had uh, one farmer who is in complete crisis, who we've passed on to the Rural Stress Network, and there is a farm crisis network number nationally, which is 0700 232 6326. So if you do know anybody that is in a proper pickle, then get them to phone that number because there is some help out there. And farmers around here, I know at the moment, uh, we have witnessed particular pickle that they are getting themselves into in terms of stress and worry. So It's uh, nerve-wracking times because it's at the beginning of harvest. We've, by and large, got very little, if anything, in store so that our revenue position potential at the moment is naught. To have weather as bad as this, as soon as this in the harvest, is quite a nerve-wracking experience. Also, it does affect your soul, doesn't it, Rich? Yeah, it does. Well, you know, I come in in the mornings and I'm always conscious of coming in and being all bright and cheery and stuff like that because you don't want to drag everyone down, you know, amidst your own misery. I'm struggling so much with this weather, you know. I mean, in the winter, I struggle with winter anyway because it's dark and these short days and everything else. So difficult. But... What can you do? You think, oh, I'll make the most of it. I'll just get out there in the rain, which you can do if it's occasional. If there's if the odd wet day, well, that's fine. You know, we need them. But when it's day after day after day of rain, you can't believe it. I wake up in the morning on a summer's morning and I think, my God, it's raining again. I get out there and I'm wet. In fact, my shoulders are wet now as I sit, yeah, sit here. my feet are wet. We went walking about yesterday, wet trousers, yeah. you know. God, blimey. And from Wiggly Wiggler's point of view, the floods has meant that we haven't been able to get orders out for yeah, four struggled. days. Which has been particularly difficult. Calamity. And I think the Royal Mail are out to get us because they are having strikes which last three weeks. But it's very clever striking. Because what they've done is they've done localised striking. So that means you send out your products, but one of the depots is shut. Yeah. Which, of course, disrupts everything. Yeah. And they take it in turn. So um, sort it out, loves. Eh? Sort it out. Have a little chat, Alan. Little chat, go round, see our postman Keith with his shorts on, <laughs> and uh, have a little chat, sort it out because we'd really like our post to be getting to the customers. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Now then, uh, let's go and cheer ourselves up with a Monty Pig Cast. Monty's Pig Cast, a weekly fact on pigs. Some breeds of pigs are special or rare because there are not many of them. Two rare breeds of pigs are. Large Blacks and Tamworths. We've got these on our farm. Thank you, Monty. Now, on the subject of pigs, we've got two bits of feedback from Podchef, and he's at www.kitchengardenfoods.com. The first is just a little uh, quip at Phil, and the second is very serious news. So, here we are. How come, Farmer Phil, you brought your cattle trailer for just three piggies? Surely you could have put them in the back of the truck. When I brought our pigs home, we packed them into a nice little crate built for turkeys. They rode the journey home quite snug. I've even had them in the back of my station wagon in a crate. There is no need to rack up the pork miles, towing (laughs) a trailer and such like. 
This is from an American, right? When I went to America, have you seen the size of the average American's truck? Yeah. What is he thinking? Does he think that we drive around in six-liter gas guzzlers? And do they ever put anything in the back of their pickups? They never do. I was in LA. Shotguns. Shotguns. <laughs> <laughs> I was in LA, which is a town, isn't it? LA, definitely a town. And I swear to you, 50% of them had pickup trucks. Right. And I never saw one single thing in the back of the pickup truck. Right. And there is Podchef having a go at poor old Farmer Phil on a rainy day. Yeah. It's outrageous. (laughs) Farmer Phil, give it back to him, babe. The thing is, I haven't got a back on my truck, so that they, without a crate, as he says, they would have escaped. And it was all right. It was a one-off. Yeah, if we're going to give the piggies trips out, then, yeah, we'll do something different and we'll have a back or whatever. But lighten up, Pod Chef, eh? You know? Yeah, yeah but, but I... Well, if you want to give Farmer <laughs> Phil a hard time about something, then talk about the brand-new combine that he's just bought. <laughs> Well, the huge tractors yeah, he changed every three that. years. Yeah. You know, I mean, God, you know, come on, concentrate on the real issues here. Yeah, they really guzzle some diesel, they do. How is the new combine, Farmer Phil? I hear that there's dual wheels going on on combines. All well, that, yeah, back to the wet. Oh, I no. <laughs> I, I dug him out of it with oh, a bit of pigginess. <laughs> no more wet. Oh, dismal, dismal. Oh, we'll give him, what will we give him, 60 seconds? Yeah. Well, Over to you, Phil. It's quite. It's not maybe not an obvious result of the wet, but quite apart from letting the actual crop dry out to the point that we can harvest it, we then run into problems with the ground conditions underneath it. And so we've been combining some rather soggy barley, not much, I admit. But the problem is that it sinks out of sight the machinery. <laughs> and well, well, thank you for that, Liberace. <laughs> Poor Phil, he's trying to concentrate and Heather's just ruined the whole thing for him. Wouldn't be so bad if you played the right notes. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> well, there you are. So, so anyway, very, very briefly, a, I heard of a, a tyre supplier up in the north of the country who's currently supplied 70 sets of dual wheels, so Podchef will know all about this because all those good old American boys like dual wheels. And it's uh, extra sets of wheels to put on the outside of the combine wheels to try and give you some flotation to stay on top of the ground. And it's fraught with danger because you get into troubles with broken axles and all sorts. And also combines, although they look massive, they're actually largely tin. And they're very tender things so that you can't pull them easily. There's nothing, they bend and, right. oh, it's a nightmare. If you, when you get a combine stuck, you've got a big problem. Yeah. But yeah. touch wood, we've had a couple of instances and there are one or two holes in the field, but uh, we've extricated ourselves from those thus far. <laughs> I remember years ago when I was learning to drive a tractor when I was about 16 or something like that. Wait a minute, and, uh, what? I was you can drive a tractor? <laughs> oh yeah, I can drive tractors. Oh. I can drive tractors, I can drive anything, me. <laughs> but I was, you can drive I was, me around the bed. I was, yeah, absolutely. I do, After I, do, I saw your little red car things. that you've just sold, yeah. I can see you need to drive anything. <laughs> I can't believe you've sold <laughs> that for money. That's, that's great. It's a great little car. It's it wasn't. It was a Tesco's trolley on wheels. With some hard currency and the way to go. So you know, it's a good thing. It's on the narrowly avoided being picked up by Quick Skip the other day. Who thought <laughs> yeah. it was one of theirs? Is it safe? It, it is safe. Yeah, yeah. It's perfectly, Has it gone MOT? It's perfectly good. Yeah, yeah. MOT for six months. Tax for. Did six you months. bribe the man? 
No, no, it was a, it was a, a man and a woman actually. And interestingly, I did talk the about MIT man. He was a green woodworker, so uh, I, I was talking about possibly some new wiggly products with him as well. Yeah, he, so he we, needed, we, we, we he needed a woodworker <laughs> with some skill, have to put a little bit of tread pattern back in those old tires. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A green woodworker. Green woodworker, yeah. So uh, so someone that works in, green. in green wood. So oh. yeah, <laughs> coppiced wood, sustainable <laughs> sources. Of, uh, he's not wood. actually green. Yeah, no, he's not green. No, he wasn't. <laughs> no, not in the literal sense. She was like, thinking of wood elves. And hobgoblins at that point. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. No, no. That's uh, you know, no. He's not green. <laughs> not green. What colour anyway, was he? What, what were we talking about? Originally, we were talking about something. Learning to drive a tractor. Ah, uh, learning to drive a tractor. Yeah, yeah. Combines. Anyway, because I, I remember because I, of course you have to put your foot on the clutch and the brake when you try to stop a tractor. And uh, and I remember driving. It mostly towards helps big, with a car as well. Yeah, I find. <laughs> yeah. The cars do. Yeah, well, but cars will stop if you put your foot on the brake. They won't obviously stall, but they will stop. Whereas, of course, tractors, I mean, they may, they may, things have changed a bit. I'm talking you know, it's 20 years ago now. And, uh, and I put my foot on the brake, and this poor old tractor, you know, wasn't stopping. And I was heading headlong into this front of the combine harvester, and I thought, oh, that's it, can't stop. <laughs> Bang! <laughs> Completely crushed. The front of the, of the cut, all the uh, you know the cutting. Uh, oh, I bet you were popular. The, the header. Yeah. Oh yeah, they, they, the oh, header. What they cost him a few quid. Is that what it's called? The yeah. header. Yeah, God. You had a head-on crash with a combine yeah, in mash, the field. Mash, mashed it, smashed it. No, mm. it was in the yard. The poor old combine. It was in the mid, in the yard. Remind me so, not uh, to call on Rich for too much help <laughs> later on in the harvest. I do then. seem to think somewhere I've got a, a tractor driving proficiency certificate. <laughs> I don't think they should have I've seen you with a wheelbarrow. I don't think I've been on a tractor since, you know. No, probably best. (laughs) Um, Jim Fredrickson has just landed on the sofa. Boing! So let's have a word with him. Welcome back, Jim. You've kindly come along to talk about many things, and certainly the original contribution was talking about nitrous oxide, worms emitting nitrous oxide. One thing you and I talked about, which is to be really interesting, I think, for the listener, is the problems that people have experienced of large-scale vermicomposting, and the distinction between that and home composting. Well, that's right. I think I've said before that I, I've been in this worm business now for 20 or 30 years, and when, when I first moved into it, I was surprised that there were an awful lot of people setting up quite large-scale worm composting and worm breeding operations. This was something I'd never seen before, and, and, and I've kept an eye on it, the whole industry, over, over the last 20 or 30 years. And I'm really, I suppose, saddened by the fact that I've seen so many people buying into these large-scale worm breeding systems, and, and actually to be frank, losing quite a, a lot of money as a result of it. Yeah. Because I think it's, very, it's really quite, quite sad that, that very often people want to diversify on farms or they have small holdings and, and they just want a little bit of extra income. And actually buying into some of these worm systems, worm breeding systems, looks a very, very attractive prospect. Mm. But do you know, in all of the years that I've been looking at these systems and, and being called in to investigate these sort of systems, I've never really found a, a successful operation, one that actually performs the way that the suppliers say they would perform. Right. I, I mean, that's in terms of, for instance, the, I suppose the, the big 
feature of success is how many worms you get out of these systems per year and how much effort it takes sure, to, sure. to breed that's them. That's the crux of the thing, isn't it? Absolutely. That's how it's advertised. You will get five you will billion get worms loads and you'll make so much exactly. money. Exactly. We've all so. seen these projections supplied yeah. by, by various manufacturers or suppliers of these systems. And, and actually, if you followed the the figures through, it's quite clear that you could be a millionaire within two or three years. Now, yeah. I don't know that many millionaires in <laughs> no, the worm breeding business. Like worm farming. No, not really. Yes. No. In fact, I don't know any. Do you know any, Phil? No, I don't. <laughs> you must right. be close to a millionaire, but it's not off the back of worm farming, is yeah, well, it? If I am, perhaps you, perhaps you go and tell my <laughs> bank manager, because he keeps telling me otherwise. But uh, no, it's interesting what Jim says, because I mean, now we've had a number of years' experience sort of all aspects of this industry, and it seems to me that the worm breeding operations that are successful have some other commercial driver. So the best ones are the Dutch, and the reason for their existence was nothing to do with worms. It was getting rid of mostly animal manure and preventing it polluting the waterways in the very low areas of Holland. Yeah. And so that effectively the worms were a byproduct, so that they weren't reliant on the sales of worms, although they are massive businesses, for the whole system to work. The thing was costed on complying with environmental legislation concerning pollution, and the worms were the add on. And where we've got these firms who tell you that if you put down X square metres of bed, you can produce Y number of worms every year. Mm. I don't think I know of one who hasn't sooner or later sold their breeding stock and suddenly realised that production has either tailed right off or ceased completely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, the other problem is the actual picking of the worms. In these highly mechanised, you know, they've had years of experience, particularly in Holland, they know how to do it economically. Whereas on a, a system in this country, the mechanical systems are quite expensive and they, you know, if incorrectly used, damage the worms. And picking worms by hand, frankly, is a pretty thankless task. And as, as you alluded earlier on, <laughs> Heather has spent some hours in her former yeah. life yeah, we... sat on a muck tump picking worms. And it's not really sustainable to do it like that. No, not at all. Not I think all. the other thing is that theoretically, in those sorts of open-air worm bed systems you won't actually, because of the high density of worms that you can get in there, you won't actually get worms, say, bigger than a gram that you need to to pick in order to make the business work. Mm. It's just theoretically not possible for worms to grow to that sort of size whenever they're in there at that sort of density. I think that's dead right. And also some of the American systems where, again, worms are the byproduct. So, for example, breeding rabbits for meat. They can be quite small-scale operations, and the worms live in the rabbit droppings underneath the cages. Whether or not you know, the issue of how the rabbits are bred and so on is, is something completely on its own, but the production of worms is a complete sideline. If there aren't any, you don't sell any. Yeah. Once they've bred up, you do. There's no necessity to keep supplying the breeding stock of the worms, and so it's much easier to manage. Those are the systems that work. The ones where you're just, as you say, keep, and you know, naturally you're going to pick the biggest worms out of a worm bed, mm. and they, of course, are the ones who are critical because they're the ones laying the eggs and, and so on. Mm, so it should be entered into with a lot of caution, I think. But we probably agree, though, the intensive systems were the Dutch and others in, in the UK who 
grow and breed worms in boxes under controlled conditions and using proper stock management systems and so on. They, they can work pretty well. Yeah. They're labour-intensive, of course, they are, but I've seen people making a reasonable income on that sort of system, but it requires people to be well-trained, to take an interest in what's going on uh, and to follow the life cycle of the worms through and to keep them under perfect conditions. And It's like every other farming process. You've really got to be skilled and trained and know what you're doing. So, what, exactly what, right. so what is the distinction between a, a large-scale unit, a large-scale system, and then a small-scale can of worms, for instance? Why is it that a can of worms can work perfectly well not in a controlled environment and you know a large-scale system doesn't work is it purely because the person is trying to get worms trying to breed worms sufficiently enough to make money out of the volume of worms that they're breeding yeah i, I think that's true i mean i think with the can of worms system it, it, it's fine it does what it says it does <laughs> yes <laughs> didn't want to say that but <laughs> yeah uh, it doesn't really matter how many worms you have in there. They'll just the, the population will control itself because that's the way these sorts of systems work. Yeah. So you, as composting systems, they work absolutely fine. They're really well designed and they're great. But actually, breeding worms in the numbers that you need to make an income is incredibly difficult. I mean, people assume that worms are very prolific when it comes to producing offspring, and they're not. They're really not. And you need the ideal conditions to keep them. You need ideal temperatures. You need it, you know, about 20 degrees C continuously. You need the right moisture levels. You need the beds to be perfectly aerobic. You need uh, feed material that's highly nutritious, and you need to change that material very often, very frequently, because the material, the food material, loses its nutritional content very, very quickly, and people don't really appreciate that. Right. So there are absolutely a number of factors, including density, that I said before. To get the sort of worm production that is often quoted by a lot of these suppliers of worm systems, you need to have very low densities. So I suspect that what's happened is that the people who supply worm systems, they take all the most positive and optimistic research data about growth and reproduction from the research that's been produced by people like me and others over the years, in laboratories, I mm. should say, uh, taken all that, that sort of most optimistic information and translated it into worm outputs per kilogram of waste or per square metre of bed or however you, you want to look at it. And I have to say that those worm outputs are only feasible in the laboratory and under ideal conditions, and they simply don't work in the field or in suboptimally run worm systems, even, even if they're box systems or, or, or whatever. You need about half a dozen of these parameters to be kept at optimum levels to get really good worm production. If any of those parameters are suboptimal, like if temperature gets down to 10 degrees rather than 20 degrees C, I mean, these worms are hardly going to produce any offspring at all. And that's very, very well known in, in the scientific research literature. And there's an awful lot of scientific research literature mm-hmm. around which never finds its way into the, no, the, you right. know, the popular domain of, any, of, any of worm composting. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a shame. I mean, I think it's, it is a shame. And I said in, in one of our other talks that I was a director of the Composting Association. Mm. Now, the, the Composting Association exists to support its members in the industry, so all the big guys, the big waste companies are all members and so on. Right. 
But there's also another association called the Community Composting Network, which yes. is a fantastic network. Uh, I work very closely with them. They support their members very, very well. And people can go to them and, and talk about these issues and problems. Now, what there isn't, and I think this is a shame, is there isn't a network or support body that, that looks after worm composters or people interested in producing worms, breeding worms or doing worm composting. That doesn't really exist. Now, some worm people are obviously members of the CCN or Composting Association, and that's fine. Yeah. But I think what's needed is a body, right. an association that looks after people who are uh, well, worm yeah. fetishists yeah, yeah. <laughs> like myself <laughs> and, I, and I've been saying this for years it's a brave and I think man that's going to admit that he's got a worm fetish <laughs> <laughs> well we've we've all got these little skeletons <laughs> in our we'll cupboard the bet. <laughs> but it, I think it would be a really good idea so maybe this is something that you guys would Process like to take on we, we can give some serious I think it's important to. because yeah. I think people in the specifically who deal with worms need a lot of support they need a lot of help, and, they, and what we need to do is to make sure that people who are thinking of investing into large-scale systems in particular have got the advice that they need so they know what questions to ask yeah. and, and that they get the information back from suppliers of these systems that they need to help them make the decisions that they want to make. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely bang on. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for that. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> Well, you were quiet in that interview, weren't you? Well, I wasn't really here, was I? <laughs> <laughs> That's why he landed on the sofa, because we secretly recorded it a bit ago. So anyway, <laughs> there we are. Tutson, then. Yeah, Tutson. Well, Phil and I and Rob walked around Phil's permanent set-aside yesterday, and uh, the, when the weather was, by and large, pretty shocking, but we had some sunny spells, and we, we counted several species of butterflies, but Rob, you know, he, he likes his, uh, his, his flora especially, and we stumbled across this hypericum, Tutson, it's called, and Rob was just completely enthralled by this thing because it's an indicator species of ancient woodland. It was admittedly quite close to the boundary of the wood, but obviously the set-aside has been left for a reasonable amount of time, sufficient for these species to manage to colonise. Um, so that was great. So you know, let's have a listen to what Rob thought about it. OK, and we'll make it plant of the week. Height up to 80 centimetres, Hypericum androsemum, upright semi-evergreen shrub, Shrub oval leaves are born opposite pairs. Yellow flowers, berries ripen red to black. Here we go. What have you found, Rob? What have you yeah, found? This, this is Tutson, and this is fantastic, really, because <laughs> this, this is an indicator species to ancient woodland or, right. or an ancient hedgerow or really? ancient places. And here, here we are on the ten-year-old set aside. It's beautiful. It, what it, does it look like? It's, it's a kind of starry-shaped flower with yeah, a, it is a lovely... And, and, and that, this will be part of the wiggly wildflower and shrub range right. come, come this autumn, right, as, right. It, as it happens. Does that mean but I they... could sell it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> so we, do, yeah. we don't need to buy seed from yeah. here, Rob. Come <laughs> and pick some from Phil's set aside. Yeah, I've just, just identified myself out of, out of business here. <laughs> but but, but these, these fruits, or what appear to be fruits, are they're just full of tiny seeds. Look, masses oh, God, look at that. That's amazing. Yeah. So hypericum, same same family as the St John's wort. Really, it's gorgeous. And are those berries edible? No, no. no. So even for you know, different mm. forms of wildlife, or are they just uh, to, to, to my knowledge, they're not edible. It has a long, a long history of uh, medicinal uses for, for various different things. Of what right, I'm, right. I'm not sure. Fantastic. There was all sorts. So we just walked through some uh, musk mallow as well, which is again is something that's you know decidedly rare these days. Yeah, and yet it's popped its head up here. One of only 
two places that I know of it growing wild in Herefordshire, although I don't get round Herefordshire as much as I would like. Sure. I, I can only walk to one other place where I know And within, well I say ten years, but it's actually probably longer than that. That has grown on a field, this, was, this wasn't a grass field, this was arable. We ploughed this field. You're on the edge of a deciduous woodland. It's not a terribly old piece of woodland, although just further up the hill from here there is evidence of a lot of very old oak stumps that have been sawn off and the stumps have rotted off the ground which yeah. indicates yeah. that it's been woodland for a hell of a long time yeah. and it was probably clear felled you know looking at these oak trees what do you reckon rich i expect they're probably oh, 50 four, years 40, old 50 years yeah gotta be which I? sort yeah. of fits with the major goings on but these have coppiced up these oak, oak yeah. trees have all coppiced up from the stump so they were they probably have. cut down 40 or 50 years ago yeah and then they've grown up if you if you look at all the, all the trunks there's one or two there's usually two or three together and that's where they've been cut down and, and this this would indicate that, that there was a lot of work done on this farm between the wars so any time from the 30s until sort of immediate post second world war i suppose which exactly fits yeah. date wise and then just a little bit further into the wood there is the actual woodland fence and then within that there is actually a better stand of some planted and some more managed oak woodland so where they've taken the coppice regrowth from the stump and selected one shoot to grow on into a tree and that you know managed it a bit better thinned yeah. it yeah whereas yeah. these these are much more so, um, so much tighter aren't they you know the, uh, but, they, but it's great because they aren't see what it's really interesting it is. yeah I've heard a wren in the background then it's nice to see that green woodpecker as well and that's uh, an indication that there should be some uh, healthy ant life around here I don't know we haven't bumped into any yellow sessile oak sessile oak right how can you tell the difference Rob so sessile oak has the, the long stalk to the leaf whereas if we're looking at English oak or Quercus roba it has no no stem to the leaf right if there are any acorns here which there aren't again the acorn on on a sessile oak has no stalk right and on the English oak it has a long stalk so okay. it's the other way around to the leaf Excellent. Now then, before we leave you for another week, I thought you might like to know that I've been on to the One Minute How To Show, and that is oneminutehowto.com, and I'm on there doing how to recycle your kitchen waste with worms. So there we are. So I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. It's still raining here in Blakemere. Um, But if you do get a chance, we would love to have a review on iTunes that we can read out and (laughs) just tickles us, doesn't it? It just totally tickles us. And a quick congratulations to Anna Farmery, my co-podcaster at Middle Age Shed and the Podcast Sisters, who's been nominated for this year's Podcast Awards in LA. So uh, I hope you win. I think so. I, I believe it's the only UK-based business podcast, so I really hope she does well there. And so, anything else to add, gentlemen? And the second thing from Podchef was... Oh, oh, the second thing, the critical thing from Podchef. Let me just go to these emails and see what it was. It's awful news. This is an intervention, says Podchef. I know how addicted to milker you are, dear heart. This is to me. That's nice. But you must end your fondness of it here and now. You must put your money where your milker is. And then he goes on with some diatribe about 
the problems that um, milk is made by Kraft and Kraft is owned by Philip Morris and he's the guy that the tobacco giant and all these sorts of things and what he says is that we need to rethink the chocolate rating based not only on taste but based on fair trade ethics right. based on farming based on this is a, this is a problem isn't it you know we uh, really you know we we started our our, uh, our chocolate rating up it was a bit of fun wasn't it something very innocent and purely based around the fact <laughs> I think there's a simple solution team there's there's no issues for me here if the ethical chocolate manufacturers would like to send us some samples for us to peruse together with their ethical values That'll do me. Well, well, it's not only that, but Podchef has put his money where his mouth is, and he has sent us a whole dose of this most delicious chocolate called Divine. It right. is good. And yes, uh, is. so I suggest that we should, you know, take this further and have a proper chocolate tasting on next week's show. Right. With chocolate that I found from Wales called Pemberton's. Okay. And that's from the chocolate farm. We've got Divine, we've got Milka, we've got Green and Blacks, yeah. and we've got any other chocolate that anyone wants to send in. <laughs> Good thinking. <laughs> if you want your chocolate reviewed yeah. on this show, we need some of it. We better make this in a show in a, a few weeks, hadn't we? In a show in a few weeks, we need some of it, and we need to know it's status okay. in terms of Definitely. food miles in terms of ethics yeah. and we'll make our judgment because there's no way i'm just giving up milker okay no way until i've checked the whole thing out and i've actually found that they're actually part of an ethical organization called ethisol i think it is and so all might not be as it seems to be so from the weekly sofa this week thank you very very much for tuning in and we will talk to you shortly. Bye. Glug, glug, glug. Glug. Before we finish this week's show, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. Absolutely. Um, I thought you might like to know that I'm actually on the one minute how to.com shows with George. And I'm, set, I'm doing a how to recycle your kitchen waste with worms in one minute. And there's some other corking how minute ones. How minute... <laughs> how minute one to? Oh, <laughs> oh, dear. And <laughs> just a minute, I can't say that. Just a minute. <laughs> OK, here we go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Michael's going to take a week to edit this. No, lot, no, it's see. all right. Yeah, okay. we've, gone on, we've, we've been all over the shop. I'm completely confused. Yeah, I'm confused. totally confused. I just chip in every now and again <laughs> with, some, with some anyway, whatever I'm supposed to are. say. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Mary, <laughs> she, she tried to dissuade me on Tuesday, but I would have none of it. <laughs> no, no, he must come. Yeah. Uh, right. Just before... That was your fault.